Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Perceptive Podcast here on Game Wisdom, where we some of the art and science of games. I am, of course, Josh Spicer, and we have another fantastic cast for you this week. This is a guest I've been wanting to talk to for some time. He has been called the self-titled old man of the game industry, and I guess the uh, title for our cast this week will be kind of like uh, Grumpy Old Men Talk Video Games. But... He is the owner and lead designer of Spireweb Software, who have been around since 1994, designing RPGs back when they were considered modern to now I guess they're considered vintage or classic. And his next game, Queen's Wish, The Conqueror, is due out soon. But please welcome to the podcast from Spireweb Software, Jeff Vogel. Thank you, Evan. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to have you on, Jeff. How are you doing? Pretty good. Very busy. I know Wish the Conqueror is coming out in about a month, and you know it's just it's just a frenzy of a million different shops to configure and contracts and mm-hmm. PR and oh, yes. and all of that stuff. But it'll be it'll be very good to have it done. I can certainly relate with the work I'm doing, and I'm sure for any developers listening, they're probably nodding their head in agreement right now with you. But again, thank you so much for coming on. We've been talking kind of on and off through email for the last few years. I know for people listening, we did a written interview, I think, that was around the time... I think your last game or the one before that came out that we did a written interview. But... We finally have you on. So once again, thanks for coming on here. <laughs> well, thank you. Yep. So to begin with, I know for people listening to us, they've probably either are well aware of what Spireweb software are, or they may have no idea. So for the people listening to us, could you talk a little bit about who you are and what is your background when it comes to game development? Well, uh, Spiderweb Software was founded in in 1994, and we've been continuously, you know, making our making a living writing video games since then. Which makes us uh, we're not. I don't think we're the oldest indie game developer. We, we, we've been doing it continuously for the longest, but we're very close. And the difference would be in a matter of months. We're we're as old as the stones and the dirt. Um, it's a small. It's it's a literal mom and pop op. Um, I do the programming and design. My wife is my business manager and helps with design and writing the games. But it's just, you know, it's a small company operated out of our house in Seattle, and we write um, retro role-playing games. Very story-heavy, very turn-based, very old-fashioned. Um, they're low-budget, and they're, they're very retro, but they're also, you know, they're really well-designed and a lot of fun. Um, a lot of writing, a lot of interesting stories. Uh, it's an older, sort of perennial it's it's an evergreen style of video game that there's always a demand for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what we do. And we've settled ourselves up just with a nice career, making sure that this niche is always satisfied. And for myself, I think the first game that I found Spire with, I think that was Gene Forge, I want to say either two or three. Was yep, so that was a while. That would have been about 2003 to 2006. Mm-hmm. And... I think one of the things I find very funny, Jeff, that you said about kind of the niche of classic RPG design was, again, when you started the studio back in 1994, classic was considered it. That was the standard and the future of RPGs. And as I'm sure everyone listening to us is well aware of, we've seen the kind of the growth and the evolution of the genre. And 
I feel like we could probably spend just an entire cast talking about how things have changed over the last. Oh my goodness! I again, I feel old. I think <laughs> like it's I said, a very, it's a you know, it's a it's a rich topic, and it's yeah. something you can nerd out about pretty much indefinitely yes. because, like, just the standard old like ro- role playing game elements have infected pretty much every element of video games yes. now. Um, you can't, you know, you can't make a shooter anymore without your game levels and stats and whatever. Mm-hmm. But just the classic old school role playing game. You make up, make one adventurer mm-hmm. or a, a, a small group of adventurers. You gain skills. You make get spells or whatever. You get weapons and you go out and you trash the bad guys. Is an extreme. You know, it's it's a very adaptable. Genre, you can do enormous amounts with it, from like simple action games like Diablo to like much more story-heavy, yeah. thoughtful, thoughtful games like the Baldur's Gate games or Pillars of Eternity or my games Exile and Gene Forge yeah. and Avernum and Abaddon and so on and Queen's Wish. Yeah, like for me, like one franchise I would also kind of like lump into that category as well would be stuff like I played the Etrian Odyssey franchise on, uh, I think it started on the DS and then moved to the 3DS, which again just falls into that classic template of build your party of five, here's a dungeon, you know, start exploring and that's about it. Yeah, you can do a, you can do a lot with that. Mm-hmm. You there's there is still it is still one of the reasons I lo- I like the genre and have been able to write in it for so long is that there's still so much room for ingenuity. I mean, mm-hmm. people have been making these games for well over forty years, but Queen's Wish the Conqueror has a lot of design elements in it that I think are unique or nearly unique. Like it's it's going to pl- feel and play different from just about any game I've ever seen. And, um, you know, I think that people will be coming up with new new ways to do that and new ways to tell stories using that medium, you know, long after I'm dead. It's mm-hmm. it's very versatile. Yeah. And I think one thing that has also, I know it's been praised about your games in particular, is definitely the story and the writing involved. Because as you said, from a basic gameplay loop standpoint, they're all turn-based RPGs. But the subtlety is definitely there. I know with Gene Forge, I think when I play a little bit of it, there's definitely like that focus of, you know, the people who can control these monsters or do these summonings versus the people who can't. And I remember the story of, I think, Abaddon. With that one, when you're being controlled or you're working for kind of like the king there, that has its own sense of morality and play in it. And again, like we could... Like, as you just said, like we can nerd out on just like any topic here. It can turn into like a five hour discussion. Yep. But um, I guess with that said, like I'm trying to keep myself because I can feel like with this kind of cast, if I'm not careful, we'll be here. We'll like go through our time immediately on any topic. But one thing that I wanted to touch on again, as I was saying before the cast, like my audience definitely includes develop like first time developers and students interested in the game industry, and sure. a major part of Spireweb again is the fact that you guys have been going now for what were we like twenty five years now. Yes. Again, like and like for people listening to us right now, two years is considered a long time in the game industry. Yeah, like if you've been doing it ten years, you know you're a, you're an old hand. Yeah. And people, I have been called like old man Josh because I'm 34 talking about video games. Yeah, you're an embryo. 34. Yeah. Good lord, that's that's nothing. Again, like for people listening, we'll, I think we may just call this like the grumpy old man cast about video games. 
Jeff, if you if you decide to get out of the game industry, you just want to do podcasting for a living. I think we just came up with our new podcast show. <laughs> uh, I'm too I'm too old to learn a new thing. <laughs> but uh, getting back to the topic, like one thing I really want to talk to you about because it is kind of relevant today is the growth and kind of what we, what's been kind of coined the digital store wars. I'm sure you are well aware of oh, kind yeah. Of, yeah, of course. what's going on there. And I wanted to talk to you, or at least talk a little bit or briefly about this a few minutes, kind of like what does this all mean to somebody who's been doing this before there was ever even the idea of having a digital store for video games? So, yeah, so just sort of a background, you know, just to talk like a a grumpy old man for a few minutes. So when I started in 1994, the the term indie game didn't exist. In fact, just using the word indie to describe things wasn't really a thing. What what we what we called everything was 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 it was called shareware. And it was the 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 radical idea that, you know, you'd pass demos of games back and forth on floppy disks. And if you you'd try a demo, if you like the full game, you'd pay me you'd pay me money and I'd unlock the full game for you. Uh, in terms of online stores, there was nothing. If you wanted to sell your your games yourself, you just you had to do it yourself. You had to make your own online store. You had to get your own account to take to take credit cards. And that was extremely difficult at the time. Um, you had to take the orders yourself. I took my, I would, I took all my, most of my orders myself over the phone, um, or people would mail me checks. So just the idea of online stores is, um, you know, was completely unthinkable when I started. But of course, when I started, the, the World Wide Web wasn't even really a thing. Yep. It was it was pretty much pre when anyone knowing that knowing about the World Wide Web. So. These stores, the Steam, the Epic Store, Itch, GOG, all of those uh, is just is is truly an amazing development in terms of making it possible for people to 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 be in this business. Because, you know, it's far harder to get established as a person in this business if you have to make your own online store, make your own Web page, learn Java and program your own store. You deal with all your customers, deal with each individual sale personally. It was really daunting. It was really something that kept people you know, from doing it. And um, that is something that has just changed unthinkably. And now the stores are fighting, and they're at, some stores are actually like fighting over us to get us to put our games with them. Um, is is you know it's it's a it's a quite a remarkable development. And like this is like one of those things that for like people on the younger side, like they just it, it just seems like Steam has is always there and will never go. But again, like for people like us, like. We grew up when there was no such thing as a digital store. Again, I remember Shareware, and I'm sure a few of the older people listening to us as well. And I think I think you wrote a piece about this. I'm not sure. I think it may have been a few years ago about just how important digital stores were for kind of the growth of the game industry, or specifically the growth of the independent side. Well, the growth of the independents, like big companies were always big enough to, to do whatever it took to get their games in front of people. They just hire people to do it, and they were big enough that they could go to CompUSA or Best Buy or whatever and get their games on shelves. But now, like with something like Steam, one person anywhere in the world can write a game and then immediately have it for sale in front of the world. You know, it's a truly 
you know, re- remarkable development. It's an inc- it's incredible power and disruptive power in the hands of the little guy. Because you know, you come up with a with a game that could take over the world, and you have you know you have access to the world's biggest megaphone immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. This is one of those things that a lot of people talk about, especially I know Cliff Harris has made posts about this from Positive, about just how easy it really is these days to make and sell a video game. As you were saying a few minutes ago, back in the old days, there was no such thing as the internet, or at least not the internet as we know it. <laughs> I just love it when I talk about stuff like that, again, showing my uh, old manness. When <laughs> I spoke to a teenager about what a dial-up modem was, and she looked at me like I was describing, like, you know, rubbing two sticks together to make fire. <laughs> well, all it takes is one good solar flare, and we'll be back there again. Yeah. <laughs> and when it comes to this idea of, you know, being tied to a digital store or the use of them... I think I know the answer you're going to say here, Jeff, but I just want to get it clarified for people listening that it is definitely better, I think, for the game industry now than it was, I would say, what, 15, 20 years ago? Uh, I think just about everything is yeah. better now. I, and and it's it, by any conceivable metric, the, the gaming industry is at its peak in terms of the number of people who work in it, in terms of earnings, in terms of the number of titles, in terms of the number of people who, who experience our product. It just goes, it just goes up and up. The, um, you know, there are more good games out now than anyone could play. Yes. No matter what your tastes, I could find a pile of games that would addict you. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, it's it's in a it's in a pretty it's in a pretty remarkable place beyond you know anything anyone would have imagined even you know twenty years ago. So, uh, keeping with that line though, there's one question that I gotta ask you: When we saw kind of like Steam become solidified, and now what we're at with this whole idea of the quote-unquote digital store wars, there's been arguments regarding curation when it comes to the game industry, as you just said. Regardless of somebody's taste, you can find a uh, bundle of games that would fit them. Conversely, I could spend two minutes and find some of the most off-putting, low-quality games you could imagine. And for fans of Game Wisdom, you know, we have done that each week when I look at what's coming out on various sites. But what do you think about this idea of having to curate games, or do you think there is a need for that when it comes to digital stores these days? Well, I so my games are low, but I am always afraid of um, I'm afraid of curation personally because I write low budget games. You know, if you know if my games ever go before a board of curators, usually it gets by. But there is always a chance with my games that I'll I will come up with a board of people who are like, this is just not what we're looking for, and you know, just make make my games vanish. So I am always on the side of, you know, less curation, because if there was, you know, have any, once curation gets the slightest bit heavy, I'm going to vanish and I don't want to vanish. But at the same time, I have learned to lose faith in, in, in algorithms. Mm-hmm. The, um, for example, steam is in a position where it wants to do everything with algorithms, everything they, they, you know, they want to stay a small company. They want a ton of employees. So they have this network of algorithms that decides what games get shown where on the store, but they 
the people who make money by gaming those algorithms will always have more time and more passion put into getting around your algorithms than you will have time and passion in maintaining your algorithms. So go to Steam, the Steam store right now and click on the role-playing game tab just on the main page, and you will find – heck, I'm, I'll, I'll go to the Steam store right now. You will find a bunch of stuff that isn't not what anyone savvy with games would consider a role-playing game. So I'm clicking on the RPG tab right now, and I'm looking at the – the, the top games. Okay. Um, I'm seeing a lot of visual novels and a certain amount of pornography. Yes. Um, it is not, I don't want to get in an argument about the, the true meaning of a role playing or what the definition of a role playing game is, because that is an infinite, um, <laughs> that, that is an, you know, an infinite pit of time wasting. But what I will say is that in your store, when someone clicks on a role playing game button, it should have meaning like, mm -hmm. I don't know what that meaning is going to be. That's that Steam shop, but it could have some sort of meaning besides just a, a collection of random games. Some are most are visual novels, and you know what a visual novel is. Everyone knows what a visual novel is. Some are smut. I'm not seeing anything in the at the top of the list that anyone who is a savvy who who knows enough about computer games to know what a role playing game means would consider a role playing game. That is because when when I'm figuring out what to put in the new and trending role-playing games tab, Steam has an algorithm to use. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people want their game to show up, so they've gamed that algorithm to make sure their game shows up. And so now, I, I mean, I have nothing against visual novels with lots of lots of breasts in them. You know, if that's if that's your thing, go with God. But I don't think my game should appear in the same tab as them yeah. because it's just not helpful to the user. Someone who's looking for a visual novel with breasts and someone who are is looking for a very story-heavy, intricate, turn-based role-playing game, they're, they're not going to want to find them in the same tab. And that... That is, I think, the pro the problem now that the industry is really suffering to to really having a hard time solving. Yeah. Uh, the leading store doesn't want to hire a lot of people. They don't want to get in curation. They want to trust the mighty algorithm, and the algorithm just isn't working. Um, and by the way, I say this as I've been a big Steam booster forever. Steam is the best thing that ever happened to my business, and I've dealt a, with personally with a lot of Steam people. They're good, hardworking people who really genuinely want the best for their customers and the best for the industry. So, you know, I feel bad about calling them out and criticizing them. Not, not that I'm big enough that they would care about my opinion. I'm just a little guy. But still, it's, it's, I think it's a really big problem that needs to be faced. And again, like, when it comes to this kind of creation, like, I see the same thing with YouTube, with a lot of the stuff I do on YouTube with videos and design talk. That there are people who game the system there just as they game the system on Steam. And it basically makes it worse for everybody. Like, when you type in a video game or if I look up something, I get all matter of, like, weird and crazy stuff that, again, like we talk about, I may get in trouble for mentioning it here. But... That's the kind of stuff that happens on YouTube. And here's a really good point, as you just said, Jeff. Like, I went down about three pages on the RPG tab, and one of the games I saw was a survival first-person shooter game involving zombies. 
Like, I did not see anything RPG related there. And these, you know, it's art. All yeah. of these genres are fuzzy. If mm-hmm. that person wants to call their their a first person shooter an RPG, that's their right. But I maintain mm-hmm. that the person who clicks on the RPG tab doesn't want to see that, and therefore mm-hmm. my problem with it is that it makes less less useful. For the player. It's like a lot of people complain about the number of games on Steam. I don't have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. If someone is looking for a role-playing game and they click on the RPG tab and they see 500 RPGs in the more traditional meaning mm-hmm. of the word RPG and my games are mixed in there, I'm fine with that. Yeah. I can win. I can. I will I will take that fight and I will make a living out of fighting that fight. I know that because I've been doing it for 25 years. Mm-hmm. You know, 20 years ago, if someone was looking for a shareware role-playing game tab, they'd go to a shareware site and they'd press the RPG button and they'd see a list of 500 yeah. RPGs. And maybe... Maybe they'd spot mine and maybe they wouldn't, but enough people would stumble upon mine, enough people would like it that I would get those sales and I'd make a living. The, what I'm scared of is that they've made Steam has made their RPG button so useless mm-hmm. that no one's ever going to look in there at all. Yep. That's bad news. Um, that's bad news for my business and it's bad news for their platform. They mm-hmm. should they should want a way to fix that because you know it's it they don't i don't think i legitimately don't think that steam wants the people to use their site to be saying oh i don't want to i don't want to use their site it's just not useful it doesn't give me what they want i but i know they're working very hard with like deep learning and algorithms and stuff to fix that and find a way around that problem and help people who like rpgs find rpgs that does not change the fact that right at this moment their role playing game tab doesn't have any rpgs in it yep and that's always been like the very weird thing about uh, Valve and Steam, as you said, that they've wanted to keep things small. They're one, like them, Nintendo, and Blizzard are probably the three most like secretive companies in terms of their practices and their philosophy. And there have been people, I, I've seen it, you've seen it, I'm sure the people listening to us have seen it as well, who have like yelled at Valve saying, you know, hire more people, you need to do this, this, and this. And they've kept themselves kind of as privately as they can on the matter. And it's just like a very hard thing to, to kind of try and fix along those lines. Because some people say that you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I want to be just a smaller company, smaller store. But on the other hand, Steam has very much become synonymous with PC gaming. Like, that's what people associate. And like, a lot of people don't even think about buying a PC game that's not on Steam. Yeah, it's it, but I'm still optimistic. I mean, it's it's so new. It's all so yes. so new. I mean, the giant indie glut only happened like five years ago. It was only five years ago that everyone yeah. in the world decided, "Hey, I'm going to write an indie game." It. We're still we're still trying to find find our way out of the woods on this one. Oh, so yes. I, I I'm actually like I said I like Steam people and they're really smart and I really think over time they're going to get closer in a direction of a problem. Although there's no never going to be a solution you can fall asleep on. They're going to come up with a solution. It'll work for a while and people game their way around it. Then they'll come up with a new solution. People game their way around it. But they, you know the, I just hope I just want to make sure they know that there is a problem and I think that they're becoming aware. Um, we'll we'll see. But I'm I'm still optimistic. Um, you know, our business does better and it does worse, but um, we're, I think that we're going to do okay. And I'm looking for, you know, our new game's coming out next month. And um, you know, I think it's going to do all right in the end. And 
I think with that said, though, I know somebody who's listening was probably thinking about this. I need to ask this of you, Jeff. What do you make about Epic trying to compete with Steam or being like the first legitimate competitor to Steam after what seems like an age or a decade of just Steam being in control? Uh, I believe that as a, as a categorical rule across all industries – more competitors is better than fewer competitors. Um, the I, th- I think that that's just I think that that's just a good a good rule. It's having more competitors in any field, you know, keeps everyone from getting complacent, keeps them on their game, keeps them you know working hard to make make good features for their customers. Um, I think that Epic itself would admit, and I like Epic, and I hope that they do well. Um, I hope that they succeed and I hope, I think Epic would admit and has admitted their store still needs some features. It's a new thing. They're trying a lot of new stuff. They're trying a lot of experiments and Epic still has a ways to go before it can compete with Steam just in terms of what they bring to the customer. Um, that being said, I believe they can do it and I hope they can do it. And I've, you know, I've, I've talked to Epic people. I've told them this personally. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm rooting for them. I'm rooting for any place that in, I'm, my, my, I'm on the side of indie developers. I'm mm-hmm. in the mood. I'm a support anything that helps indie developers yes. make, make rent and feed their children. More stores offering more features, offering more opportunities, competing with each wow. other is good for indie developers. And therefore, you know, I wish them the best of luck. And I hope that people get off the cases of indie developers who do um, um, exclusives on the Epic Store. You know, these are all people, they're trying to make a living. They're trying to keep their houses, they're trying to feed their kids, they're trying to make a living in in an incredibly difficult, incredibly competitive blood sport business. And if Epic walks up and says, that existential terror you feel every day, we're going to relieve you of that terror for two mm-hmm. years with, with this bag of money. You know, of course they're going to take that. And if you want to take that opportunity from them, from them, that's mean. That's mm-hmm. just mean. And if you prefer to play games on the Steam store, my, I, I, I understand. I understand it completely because the Steam store has a lot of really good, good features that Epic doesn't have yet. But my God, show some human empathy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you 100% on that. Oh, excuse me, my voice decided to cut out there. But yeah, and like for myself, like I've interviewed so many indie developers over the past seven years. And I think, again, for a lot of people who aren't in the game industry, they think you release a game, you become successful, you don't have to work another day in your life. It's hard. Yes. It is hard. However much you think your favorite indie developer is making, they're making less than that. Yes. Some of them are rich, not a lot. There are, and there have been quite a few of them. I thought they were rich, and they are not rich. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to survive in this industry, again, like as you just said, like with Epic, I may not. Again, the Epic Store is not as functional. It's not as feature complete as Steam. But if they can guarantee that a studio can not only make their video game, but can live off of that for even like a few years, a few months, extra, whatever, I'm going to support them like that. It's yeah, not... If you're, a small, 
And this is true throughout history. Yeah. If you're a small artist and you have an opportunity to get a patron, you get the patron because mm-hmm. that's otherwise you starve. Yeah. And Epic is offering to become the patron of small artists. Yes. And again, like if it's a matter of clicking on an additional store or making sure that they can, you know, live, I'm going to install that other store. I don't care. And I said this on Twitter, like I am not like like what you said, Jeff. Like I like Steam, but I am not held to them, you know, like, I'm not worshipping Steam. I will go where the games are. But I think <laughs> we can certainly... Also, if you're, if one, one advantage of Steam is that, unlike the Epic Store, Steam sells hentai mosaic fix-it shop. Oh, good. If, if you're interested in playing that, you can easily find it. It's under the role-playing games tab. I'm sure it's also Metroidvania, too. <laughs> oh, good. 28 positive reviews. I'm sure. Sorry, I, I'm gonna as soon as this inter- in, um, in, in, as this interview is over, I'm gonna go in quite the rabbit hole with hentai mosaic fix it shop. I'm gonna read the the oh. heck out of these reviews. There's your next oracle on Gamma Sutra. <laughs> but yeah, there's a we can. I could have you on for our Sunday show, Jeb, when I look at the weird games, and you can see like which ones uh, pique your fancy there. <laughs> no, no, no. I one thing I'll say for sure: this game is not weird. I know exactly what uh, it's selling. There is no mystery. <laughs> there is no... Per- I'm not the slightest bit perplexed with the product that Hentai <laughs> Mosaic Fix-It Shop is trying to sell me. Well, I can actually do you one there. There, We've looked up a game. It's called... This is a game for Josh. And nobody knows what it's about. I think it's a visual novel game, but nobody knows what else is in there. I was thinking about playing it because it is a game for Josh, but... I don't know. It seems like it's too on the nose for me. So I would like to, before this ends, I would like to talk about our new game. Yes, it would be good to get to that. So uh, we can uh, put aside the industry chat. Again, Jeff, you're free in the future after the game's out. You know, I'm more than happy to have another old man rant with you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just opened up a, a, a browser window with a game for you, Josh. I'm going to read about this, too, although it only has one user review. Okay. <laughs> it's a deeply enthralling experience, awesome. according to the review. So it'll give you some to look for it, too. All right. But again, w- with this cast, we could go. I can't imagine how long we could actually talk, but let's talk a little bit about King- Queen's Wish. And then sure. we'll talk a little bit more about general RPGs on, because again, that topic could last and we could easily fill the remaining parts of it. So, with that said, for the people listening to us right now, after our little old man rant, what is Queen's Wish about? So it's a like everything else. It's a it's a retro style in, um, in indie story heavy role playing game about um, about family and empire. And in Queen's Wish, you are you know the the deadbeat child of a family. Um, except that this family in this case is the royal family of the Empire of Haven, and their job is to run run the empire to keep all of your vassal states in line. While well, you've spent your entire childhood avoiding responsibility and having fun and partying as much <laughs> as possible, and your family has decided that they have had enough of it. And one day you are woken up and brought before your mother, the queen, and told that it is time for you to prove the yourself. You are going to one of Haven's few lost colonies on the continent of Sacramentum, where your job is to bring them back under Haven's control. They will give you great power. They will give you soldiers. They will give you wealth. They will give you resources because you are a prince or princess. But your job then is to return and um, 
is to is to bring them back under control. And they dump you into a one-way teleporter and send you there. At which point, for the first time in your life, you have both power and freedom, and you have to decide what you're going to what you're going to do. Are you going to follow your orders? Or are you going to do what your family expects and join the family business? Or are you going to try to go your own way? And bear in mind that whatever you want to do. My job as a game designer is to distract you from it and try to convince <laughs> you to take a different path. Mm -hmm. um, and that is that is basically the story of the line of the game. You're exploring this strange continent with these strange people with these different cultures. They who in turn they have their own agendas, their own wants, their own mm -hmm. things that they're trying to get out of you because you're the rich, powerful one. And you know, interact with them and decide what to do. And in the meantime, you can be built rebuilding Haven's fortresses and industry in Sacramento. And one of my favorite things about this game is that the real power comes not from going into dungeons and killing things and taking their stuff. It comes from rebuilding your empire and rebuilding your forts and building industry. So all when you build, when you rebuild a fort, then you get to start building up, adding shops, adding defenses. And then those things have a direct, those are the ways that you make your character more powerful. Mm -hmm. All of the best weapons in this game are made by you. All of the best armor, all the yeah. best magic items, all of the best potions are made by you and your reward for completing dungeons is not just magic items. There are night cool magic items, but the biggest reward from dungeons is resources, which then you pump back into your forts to, mm -hmm. to, to build, build the mighty industry, rebuild your mighty industry on Sacramento. And for people listening to us right now, that kind of focus on like the base building and the fort rebuilding, is that new in terms of like your design from previous games? It is. It's certainly the first time that I've ever done something like this, and there have been plenty of games and role playing games that give you have base building um, aspects, but I've never seen one that. And there are games that let you spend money and you get a castle and you put in money and the castle gets bigger and this and that. But I've never seen one that makes it this integral to the game, this integral to expansion in the game, this integral to the storyline. Um, that it's like your character's advancement track isn't just experience, it isn't just skills, it's how much you've built and how much iron you control and how much quicksilver and how much stone and how many dungeons and factories you have converted through cunning or force to, to work for you. And I'll be honest, I get a huge, I get a huge kick out of this, this aspect of the game. I like when I, I really enjoy, you know, every role playing game you walk into shops, but I really enjoy walking into the shop and knowing that I own it <laughs> and it's making me money. Nice. Um, the it's, um, it's like money. You have a different relationship with money and weaponry in this game, which is that if you don't have your your bakeries and your your um, distilleries aren't making you enough money money for the weapon you want, you can just go you know um, wander around or spend a few nights at the inn and then come back and your people have earned you enough money to get you your sword. Now at this point, time is passing and and then your family might start nagging you. Come on, we gave you a job to do. You, you, your family works very heavily into this game. There's some really cool characters that I enjoy writing a lot. Your mother and your siblings who are always sending you messages and having conversations with you sort of long distance and trying, finding out what's going on from you and trying to influence your, your behavior in different ways and nagging you and making fun of you in a sibling <laughs> sort of way. It's, it's really fun and it's really neat. I'm, um, I've wanted 
to have a game with more writing and more personal relationships and more family. And that was something that I really incorporated into this. I think it worked out really well. I really hope this game does well because I want it to be, be in a trilogy and I want to write a lot more with these characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to clarify, in terms of like the world and the dungeons, is that procedural at all or is it hard-coded? I don't do procedural. Okay. Um, no problem with it personally. I know there are things about it that are really cool, but I am only happy when I'm hand designing it. And it's especially important because I have lots of dialogue, lots of stories, lots of side quests. Every dungeon you visit has characters in it who talk to you and the thing they give you choices and the things they say to you help build the world. And you can't, there's no, you can't do good writing procedurally. Good writing, you just Mm -hmm. have to sit down and you have to write it. Yes. Um, and you know, I know there are people who want to create good writing procedurally and I, I, you know, if they do it fine, I, I will, I'll be the first in line to buy the game. But I think, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think that really good writing that reflects the human experience is always going to have to come from a human. And keeping with that, I remember, I, I think I asked you this question when we did the written interview a few years ago, for, for people listening, in terms of like your overall process when it comes to your games, do you sit down and come up with a story first, or do you think story about... Story first. Okay. Everything, I, the first thing is always the story with me, and this is my personal process, other people do it differently. I write the story, I figure out what the what I want the story, I make a good solid story with a beginning and a middle and an end and characters and choices. I like giving the player lots of hard choices and giving the player a real chance to affect the world. And then I design the world and the game system to complement the story. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's I write the best adventure and the best game system for telling that story. And in this case, for this game, I went for a really retro, sort of top-down square space, really old school look like old Ultimas, like old Pokemon, like our old games. Mm -hmm. And it really has an old school retro look, which is going to off-put some people, but I think it looks really neat. Mm -hmm. And some people think it's cool, and some people think it's neat. And there's something I just... You know, I just really felt that it would fit well with this with this storyline. I might be wrong, but I, I, I believe in it. Now, one I hope question, it works out because I've been working on this game for like five years. <laughs> now, one question I have a, a for you, Jeff, regarding like the story and the writing of a game like this is how do you like approach like, – this is something that I've never really thought about myself, but how do you approach like the open-ended nature – of a game like this, when, as you say, you're writing the story by hand. Like, how do you, like, as a writer, accommodate for writing, like, multiple paths or multiple decisions for the player to make? It takes a while. I write down stuff on paper with pencil, and I write pages and pages and pages and pages of notes. What happens if they do this? What happens if they do this? And so on and so forth. Um, And it starts at the top down. Everything is top down. I write out the storyline on sheets and sheets and sheets of paper. And then I say, I make a map and I put where all the dungeons are. And then I start assigning story beats to different locations. It's like, okay, you're going to talk to Fred and Fred's going to send you to Susan and Susan is going to send you to Bob and Bob's going to send you to kill Frank. And I say, okay, the first character is in this town. The first character, the second character is this dungeon. The third character is in this town. The fourth character is in this dungeon. And then... And, and then that is sort of the top-level overview. Now, at a certain point, I'm going to have to go to the, the Tower of Swords and write Susan's dialogue. And then I have to spend two days in the Tower of Swords, and then I, ju- and then I write Susan's dialogue. I know, okay, Susan, someone sent you to Susan, and Susan's going to tell you to do a thing and send it to another, you to another place. And then I write just Susan's dialogue. 
and then um, and then I and then the, a few days later I will go to the next step in the quest and I'll do that dungeon. I write that character's dialogue and I have inputs. Someone sends you there. I have stuff that you do there. Someone gets you a quest and sends you a different dungeon. There are outputs. They send you somewhere else. And so I just break it down. Start with a big long thing and I break it into individual chunks. I just do those chunks one at a time. And now there might be like something I forgot to do with Susan. This happens all the time. There's like a different input for Susan where it, maybe Susan's sister is Jill. And if you do something that makes Jill mad, then Susan's you're going to have to pay – Susan money to get her to talk to you. And I forget about the thing with Jill. So I have to go back to Susan's dialogue and write in a whole new thing. That all comes out in testing. And our games are beta test for months to un uncover all this stuff. But you know, it's, it's complicated. There's a lot of steps. There's always a billion things to remember. But, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I'm pretty good at it. And our, every game we write is more complicated than the one before because my brain and my work techniques and my workflow together become ca more capable of handling the complexity. And Queen's Wish is complicated. There is a lot of stuff and a lot of threads and a lot of weird directions things can go. But I've, I've got it under control. It's been in testing for months, and now it more or less holds together and makes sense. All right. Now, one thing that I wanted to uh, expand on, as you said a few minutes ago, that if the game does well, you have plans for it to be a trilogy. Yep. And, like, from, I guess, like, a writing or even a gameplay point of view, like, how do you, like, break your, like, story up like that to consider, okay, I'm going to include all this in game one, and then this to this will be considered game two, and then this to this will be game three? So and this is um, this is something yes I've I've wrote a game Gene Forge the Gene Forge series which yeah. we're going to remaster soon it really is one of our most beloved series and mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to remastering it has a five part story there's five games and you know how the hell did I <laughs> come up with the storyline for this thing I'm going to work on for ten years the answer is I didn't I for Gene Forge for sorry for Queen's Wish for the trilogy I have a very, very vague idea, like super vague of what the second and third games are going to be. I like know how I want it to end. I know that there's like three or four choices I want you to have at the end. I have a very vague idea of what I want to explore thematically with it. Because a lot of this is, it's a game about empire. It's about building and maintaining empire, which is a very fraught very difficult, morally complex topic. And I'm a big politics nerd and a history nerd and a civics nerd. And part of this game is just exploring what empire means. How are they made? How do they fall? What do they do? How, what harm do they do? And so I have some very vague ideas of thematic elements of this that I want to get into in the next two days. But it's super vague. I could summarize it in like six or seven sentences for, for like where I want to get with these two entire games. But that's all I can fit in my brain right now. It's like every all my brain energy has gone into just writing this one game. Because writing one giant role-playing game by yourself is hard. Yes. It's a big job. And it's all I could do to just concentrate on that. And it's especially difficult to describe it to you now because the screenshots for Hentai Mosaic Fix-It Shop <laughs> have been cycling on my monitor in front of me for the last 15 minutes. So excuse me, I'm gonna close this window. Doink. Now, as I was saying, so I know roughly where it's going to go, but uh, th that six or seven sentences is all I have the cap capability to do at this point. I wrote enough to know that when I step out into midair and start writing this, the second and third game, I'll have ground to step on. I know mm -hmm. that I have a framework that I can make games at. What is the second game going to be about? What is the third game going to be about? The second game in the last month or two, I've started to have just a couple of vague ideas. 
that are solid and that I know I can build on them and make a real game. Third game, no clue, <laughs> no clue. I, um, but I, you know, but I've made a framework that I know I can write a solid game within. So when it gets to that point, I know I'm going to be able to make a game. Great. Now, with like writing these games out, as you said a few minutes ago, like a major part of like your style is definitely giving the player freedom of choice of how they build their character, how they respond to story elements, you name it, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that's very challenging that I see from a lot of RPG designers, and even just like people who write games in general, is how much do those choices actually matter to the player or matter to the gameplay itself? And what I mean by that is when we think about choice in video games, it can fall into the gameplay side of, I want to be a fire wizard, I'm going to choose fire spells. And then we have the story choice, you know, do I save this person? Do I kill them? And then how does that really affect the game going forward? Like, with your style of games, how do you approach kind of like the impact the player has on the world versus like your overall vision for how that story is going to play out? Well, like like just about every other really intricate storytelling game, it's by and large, you know, it's a, it's a choose your own adventure. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, there's not, it's not artificial intelligence. It's not creating a whole world. In the end, I, every role-playing game designer, every game designer that's telling a story has come up with a finite set of possible endings. And Queen Wish has a very broad number of possible endings, but it's still finite. And okay. I, I had to sit down and write each one. And, you know, and, and I, you will make choices. I will throw lots and lots of choices at you. And eventually all of those choices will funnel you down to an ending. And whether or not you care about that ending is strictly a function of how good a writer I am. I've tried to create an interesting world filled with interesting three-dimensional characters. And like, you know, Susan in the Tower of Knives, maybe she'll live, maybe she'll die. Do you care? Well, and then that depends on how well, how good a job did I do writing Susan? Does she have interesting dialogue? Did I make her a real three-dimensional person in your mind? If I did a good job with that, then you'll care what happens to her. You know, it's just like any work of fiction. It's it's just, you know, I consider myself a novelist who is working in the medium of video games. And, you know, some people like my novels. And that's the, the reason I'm still in business after 25 years. And, of course, the, 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 creating, um, the, the creating choices in the gameplay in terms of, like, creating fire wizards or ice wizards is an entirely separate very difficult, but very interesting and fun problem. One thing I've changed in Queenswish from all our other games is that you get full respects all the time, which is mm-hmm. to say you can, in between dungeons, go back and retrain your characters completely. But the flip side of that is for the high difficulty levels, and I am trying to make sure that the hardest difficulty level in this game is really hard. You will have to, on the hardest difficulty level, you will have to do a lot of respecting of your characters to make builds to handle dungeons in different regions. There's three main countries in this um, in this world, and they use different sorts of attacks and different sorts of strategies, and they use different sorts of armors. And so for the hardest difficulty level, you're frequently going to go back to your characters and look at them and go, what is the loadout we're going to have in terms of items and skills to be able to take these dungeons down? Um, so in this case, I know that... You, or in, if you're playing on lower difficulty levels, there's lots of different paths. But your parties will play very, very differently depending on the route you take. And I've gotten emails from my testers where they just have picked wildly different <laughs> strategies and wildly different builds and found success. So in that part, I feel feel pretty good about. 
And in terms of, like, the actual combat or gameplay loop of Queen's Wish, like, again, like, your games have all focused on the turn-based style of RPG. Are there any, like, interesting or different elements in Queen's Wish? Uh, this part is really cool. I've worked super hard on balancing this game to a fine sheen. It has, again, it has a very different feeling from all of our, all our games in that all of the dungeons are meant to be done in one trip. And the dungeons aren't very long. There's not a lot of trash monsters. There's not a lot of, like, really long fights. But the combat battle is very, like, high impact. You don't get to cast a ton of spells, but the ones you do are have a, have a big impact. And so it's like they're like short, short adventures where you have to think a lot about what you do and what abilities you can use to get the maximum impact from them. And um, because you have to complete, you might have to win five battles to beat this dungeon, and there are two side battles if you have enough strength that you can beat to get extra resources or extra treasure out of the dungeon. And then you have to go to these five battles, and you you have to say, okay, it's, it's, it starts easy, but it gets harder. I'm going to like be more careful and conserve my my fort, my my um my strength early on and really save it towards later you know that kind of thing i i there's a lot of suspense in fights like this where you know there's no there's never any cruising your way through you always have to give it at least a bit of thought to figure out you know your your strategy what you're going to attack how you're stunning and um fear and like crowd control is very important in this game it's in i healing is a lot less pow powerful but instead, you have really good crowd control options where you want, where you're really going to want to pay attention to stunning and fearing your enemies, um, because that's the best way to the best way to heal your characters is to keep them from taking the damage in the first place. The, um, the it's a very it's it's in the direction of Darkest Dungeon because I really like the way Darkest Dungeon did dungeons where it's really high impact and your characters are immediately decaying the moment you enter the dungeon and so you just have to conserve be cautious and conserve your power in order to in in order to get through it's a lot less terrifying and stressful than darkest dungeon is because you know i i'm i'm, I'm a lot more of a casual guy and have a lot more casual fans but it's the same sort of feel where you know when an enemy gets to attack you it's it, you're you're there's a really good chance you're going to feel it so you have to be careful and as you were saying a few minutes ago with kind of like the kind of like the progression of the game in terms of building your characters out. I know from when I play Gene Forge and I think I play a little bit of Avidon, like your games feature very robust skill trees. Like you can really go down the minutia of developing your characters. And like with how you're designing these dungeons, I guess how do you approach that in terms of I'm giving the player all these variety of choices but I'm still designing, as you said, these handmade dungeons and layouts. Uh, the answer is I do it by and large by dead reckoning. Um, I don't really have an algorithm. What I do is I make the game system, I make the first couple dungeons, I play it myself, and it gives me an idea of how the game feels. And once I know how it feels, I don't design a dungeon and then play it all the way with a regular party. I uh, like felt the designer is going to think that this is really weird. I, I make the dungeon and I like just sort of have a sense of this is about knowing what I know the system is like, this is, this is about right. And I give it to testers and I don't play through it myself very much because it wouldn't do any good because the party, the, there's so many different choices for how you can build your party that the party I build 
is not going to be nothing like the party of the vast majority of people build. So what I do is I send it to testers. I say, make what you want to make and go through. And if you find something is super easy or super hard, send me your saved game and mm. I will play through it with your saved game and see how it works. Mm. Um, and then I do that a lot. I, I spend most of my time playing it with other people's saved games because then I can see how the game is working you know, in the field. And then I, I tweak balance based on that. But... Um, for doing the initial design, I've just over the over the years, I've just gotten good at sensing. Okay, this is going to work, hmm. and um, if it does, if I make a mistake, then testers catch it. Now, one thing that I got to ask you, and this may kind of be part of a tangent about talking more about greater RPG design, but like for your own personal preference when you play RPGs, do you typically go for like standard parties, you know, fighter, cleric, thief kind of things, or glass cannon, or do you tend to try and make like very unpredictable or unorthodox like rpg characters or like your party compositions um i so um, first of all I, pl I play very few role-playing games um i have been playing computer role-playing games pretty much continuously since 1980 and nobody is more tired of computer <laughs> role-playing games than i am uh i mostly play twin stick shooters nice uh, but I, I play a reasonable number of role-playing games because you know i'm looking for ideas to steal and because i want to know what the what the state of the art is um, when I'm creating a party, I almost always go for like a pretty standard. I, I, I don't, I don't usually like to do weird things. I like to see how the game plays with the standard, what people do is so a couple tanks and a, the healer and the mage and stuff like that. I will always make sure to have a really good healer. I always make sure to have as good a damage sponge as possible. And I will always, there are a couple things that are almost always broken in the game and always, always overpowered. And I always make sure to try to load on that. For example, summon mechanics are almost always the strongest thing in a yes. game. Um, and by the way, I have no problem with that. Summoning creatures to fight for you is one of the funnest things in a yes. computer role-playing game. It's like multi-ball and pinball. You're yes. all that, That's always more fun. So I will always make sure to um, put summons in a game, and I always, always make sure to use summons in a game. I've worked really hard to balance summons in Queen's Wish to make them not stupidly powerful. They're still really powerful, but I've tried to make it so that you can't just throw a summon in front of 10 you know, rampaging Myrlings, and it'll just, it'll just tank them forever. You ha do have to... Um, you, you do have to, you know, think about how you're using your summons because it's kind of fragile, but you, you know, you always have to have summons and role playing. It's always fun. Um, and, and there are a couple of things, um, but yeah, pretty much I, I go first. I'm a standard party person. I think that's, I found that's a good way to sort of see what the player, what the, what the designer is trying to do. Like for me, I generally like to pick like very unorthodox parties just because I'm also like on like the edge of being tired of traditional uh, RPGs, so I always like to see how much I can break that. I also want to say, just to put on record, I am Team Necromancer in Diablo. I want my army, you know, on the map with me, just fighting. Yeah, I think that's right. what I played. That was fun. Yeah. Now, uh, one question that I wanted to ask you, like getting back to Queen's Wish and just like your games in general, like again with each one of your franchises, do they all take place like? In like I guess a quote unquote same world or same universe, or have you designed different universes for your games? Uh, the, I've been asked that before um, mm -hmm. because I've never done anything to explicitly um, say that they're all in the same universe. I've never done anything to explicitly dissuade it. And the answer, and um, this is a, an answer for a lot of things people ask me, is I have no idea. 
Um, there's a lot of things. I am so overwhelmed just with deciding the things that I have to do that I never have the spare mental energy to decide the things that I don't have to decide. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of stuff where people will ask me, well, what's going on with this adventure? What's going on with this guy? Was this guy actually guilty of the murder? Are these places in the same world? What is the... What what is the history of this? And the answer is I have, I have no idea. I I just don't have time to think about it. Yeah. And again, like with a lot of these games, like it's very easy for people to kind of you know make those traces or uh, follow those breadcrumbs. But like a lot of like your genre or a lot of the games that you've made are very much like self-contained stories. And I think this kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier with how you approach like the trilogies of your titles. Like they take place within that kind of shared. Uh, connectivity or that continuity of like the franchise itself but and i think this is one of the things that i found at least and please correct me if i'm wrong that while you can certainly play your each trilogy like avidon avidon etc like one two and three you're never really like it's never really like required like if you want to just play like the third game in avidon like you can you still get a completed story out of it it's not yeah, like, i think that's really important yeah absolutely yeah i always I always make sure to make it super explicit when selling a sequel. You can just play this game and get a satisfying experience and get on with your life. I think that's really important with a series because um, it just, it, you know, you, you can't ask that much of players. Every player already has like 50 unplayed games in their Steam library. You can't ask that much from them. You can't ask for that kind of commitment. Uh, and I, if someone is looking at Avernum 2, I, I, I just want them to feel as comfortable spending their money as possible. So I make it really clear you don't need to have played a Vernum to do this. Because if I say that, they're just going to not spend their money at all. Now, speaking about like all the games that you've made so far, Jeff, one question I wanted to ask you, like in terms of like RPG design, as we've said, like you've definitely uh, created and you've catered to this niche of classic RPG design. You've been doing it again for 25 years. Like in that time, have you like thought about or have you done like any, I guess, changes or evolutions in terms of like your approach to RPG design? Oh, all the time. The, you have to. I change stuff up like crazy because you have to or you'll lose your mind. Um, the Avernum series is very different from the Gene Force series, which is very yes. different from the Avernum series. And Queen's Wish is super different from anything we've ever done. Uh, I have to change things up like crazy every so often. Or, or, or I'll just go nuts. Um, that's what one of the reasons I completely changed the graphic style for Queen's Wish to the more retro, straight-on, square spaces, old-style, role-playing game size. Because I just got tired of looking at the old stuff. I needed something new before my eyes, something that looked different. And maybe some people, more people will like this style. Maybe more people won't. I suspect that people aren't going to like this style very much because it is older. It is more retro. But I had to do that. I had to come up with something that looked different just just to be able to stare at my monitor. Um, and yeah, it, it's I'm always, whenever I make a new series or I make a new game, I want to put some ideas in it that are new, that are not just new to me, but are new to role-playing games. Because that's partly because it's good business to do wacky new stuff, and partly because it's necessary to, um, to, to just you know stay sane and stay interested in my business. And like with, oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, I didn't say anything. Okay. And yeah, and with like evolving like your games and 
and just like changing that style. There's one thing that I'm sure people have, I'm sure people have asked you this in the past. I'm sure you've had this answer or had this, but with a lot, with your games, again, being that classical style, there's always been that argument about, you know, going into 3D or changing your look and things like that. And I just want to like get on record for people listening, like what has kept you to this classic style instead of trying to change things or go in a you know, 100% completely different direction. Like, will we ever see a twin-stick shooter from Spiderweb Software? You know, every once in a while, I daydream of doing a different genre completely, and I have a million designs in my head, But and every designer does. Um, I don't... I write role-playing games partly because it's a genre I love to write, and partly because of cowardice. You know, it's like, if I write a whole new different sort of game, I'm going to need to build an audience from scratch. I'm not going to do that when I'm a lot close... until I'm a lot closer to retirement and can, you know, take some more, take some more risks and just have some fun with it. In terms of graphics, writing a 3D game is difficult. I would have to learn a whole new, I would, I would have to, first of all, I'd have to switch to an engine that I wouldn't own the source code to, which is very scary to me. I'd have to learn an entirely different sort of programming, a very difficult sort of programming. Writing writing 3D is hard. It would take a long time for me just to learn to do that. Um, and then, you know, once I've done it and I'm writing a 3D game, first of all, it's still going to be made by one guy, one family with a low budget. So it's still not going to look that great. And I don't know, it's not, it's not my bag. It's not the thing that really interests me. I like storytelling. I like writing novels. And I don't, I'm not really that interested in making, making something that looks fancy, fancy schmancy. It's a, one of the great things about working in a small company is that you give a lot of freedom to just be an old crank and make this, I, I just make the stuff I want to make. I like icon-based games. I think icon-based games are cool. I think that nobody else makes them, or very few other people make them, make icon-based role-playing games, so I have a unique position in the market. Um, most people aren't going to like my games, but I don't need most people to make, like my games because I'm just trying to earn enough money to support one family. Mm-hmm. So the, the number of thousands of copies I have to sell to keep a roof over our heads is is pretty is, – is accessible, is attainable. And, you know, in the – that's our game's big flaw, but heck, we, we write we write good games. Mm-hmm. They're fun games with good stories, and yeah, you can always find a market for that. It's really hard to make make a really fun role playing game, but we're 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 decent at it. Yeah. And I think that may actually be a really good point to wrap things up with, because again, like we could sit here for who knows how many more hours and talk about things. We can once again dive back into that hentai mosaic game we brought up earlier in the cast. Yes, we could. (laughs) $2.99 available on Steam (laughs) as we speak from developer and publisher Lil Hentai Games. Oh, there you go. I would be more surprised if it was called uh, first-person shooter games. The uh, their other title is Hentai Mosaic VIP Room Ooh. review 154 reviews very positive note that is um, probably more review a better review and better number of reviews than any of my games <laughs> let's check I'm gonna check Avernum three our most recent game and see if if it is better reviewed than um, Hentai <laughs> Hentai Mosaic VIP Room this is not where you expected the interview to go no. but it's where it is now going <laughs> Avernum three ruined world. An excellent role-playing game, huge, really good, a huge financial success for us. We're really happy with how it's done. Very positive 90 reviews. Hentai Mosaic VIP Room, very positive 154 reviews. Mm. That makes us 9 fifteenths or 3 fifths as much of a real developer as a little hentai games. 
So why are you not interviewing them? Uh, I should. I should send them an email right now. And the well, thank uh, you for settling for the mediocrity. <laughs> the irony is, I have one of my uh, followers is it very big into like visual novel style games and stuff like that. So he would get a huge kick out of it. He may enjoy that cast more than this one. Now that I think about it. I'm looking at that now. I'm just looking at my reviews for Vernum Three. I never look at my reviews. <laughs> never, ever, ever. I, I had to look it up. Someone, someone's mad at me because he played Exile, the game. It's a remaster of in 1997, and it seemed fresher and more exciting 20 <laughs> years ago. Well, yeah, no kidding. Of course, it seemed fresher. You were 20 years younger, and you'd never played it before. Now you're an old person with a job. <laughs> I hope, and you're playing a game you've already played. Of course, it's less exciting. There you go. Not recommend review. I'm going to come to your house. <laughs> I know. I'm just going to like go away. I'll just leave the recorder on. The rest of this cast will just be Jeff no, reading I'm a podcast of just me yelling at my reviews. There we go. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, before I do let you go and go on a, a rant there, uh, just a few uh, final questions. I also want to ask you about the remaster uh, for Gene Forge as well, and then I will let you get back to ranting. So. Do you have any plans or any tentative plans for the remaster of the Gene Forge games? Starting as soon as Queen's Wish is in the bag, I'm going to start remastering Gene Forge 1. Uh, it's 20 years old. It's a terrific game, but my God, does it need a, an updating. New graphics, new interface, same story, mostly the game system, but there's a bunch of stuff that I'm, that I'm, I'm going to make a lot. I, I, I've got some ideas for it. I think it's going to make it a lot more interesting, a lot more fun. Um, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be really good. Um, the Gene Forge, Gene Forge is a terrific game in it. Yeah. It's, I'm going to make it a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to doing this one. Mm-hmm. And again, as somebody who loves pet classes, I can't wait to play the remaster of that. Yeah, one. it's nothing but you, you make your own army of custom made mutant monsters and there go right. trash bozos. It's, it's going to be a hoot. Exactly. And, um, one other thing I just want to ask you as a kind of a tangent there, like with your games, I just want to look this up very quickly myself. You've put, you've poured your games to uh, mobile, correct? Yes. Um, I, to the uh, iPad so far, but Queen's Wish the Conqueror is going to be ported to iPad and iPhone for the first time. I'm kind That's of, an, oh, go ahead. That's part of the reason also that we switched to the square tiles. Square tiles work much, much better on a small mobile device. And I was just like wondering, again, this question may be too big to go into too much detail about, but how are you finding like kind of like the audience on mobile for your games? Mostly people who already liked us. I mean, our games are small and low-budget enough. Apple isn't going to give us placement. Apple isn't going to give us the time of day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just release our games, and we do a little bit of press, and, and you know, people who are really into role-playing games just, you know, word of mouth it. iOS doesn't make us a ton of money, but it makes us pretty decent money. Mm. Um, it's, it's probably about 10% of our business, um, which is nice because basically free money. Um, and, um, you know, it's just a small audience that, that thinks it's cool and they work well and we're, we're happy to do it. I think with that, again, like we can segue into many, many, many more topics, but is there anything regarding Queen's Wish that we didn't touch on that you'd like to bring up now? I, this is, I have have more fun playing Queen's Wish than I have more fun playing pretty much any of my games. I am really happy this game, it just plays well. It's tense. It's balanced to just a spit shine. It is, and it's, the characters are neat. The writing is cool. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's so hard for, to get attention for an indie game these days, but I really hope that this game gets noticed because I think I got a live one here. 
All right, great. Uh, again, I'm definitely excited to check that one out. Like I said, I've played your games like on and off throughout the years. I'm really excited to see the Gene Forge remake myself, and I'm sure for the people listening, they're going to be excited to pick this one up. Yeah, well, yeah, thank you. Thanks for talking to me. I had a good time. No problem. If you won't go any more rants, I can just let the recorder go, you know, go get a bite to eat and then come back and see where you're at. Yeah, I, I found just as um, being on brand and as career development goes, ranting about hentai is not the way to go. It is really? not. Uh, it is not generally good for one's brand. All right, I, I'll take that. I'll consider that professional advice. So we won't. The as next fun as it is to do. All right, sorry, folks. We won't be uh, turning the perceptive podcast into a hentai chat. But there, oh. there was all your. There, but you know, that was all of the viral marketing that little hentai games could could ever have possibly wanted. Exactly. God uh, help us all. <laughs> And like I said, Jeff, uh, after Queen's Wish is out, if you have any more free time in the future, please let me know, and uh, I'll be more than happy to rant with you on more topics later on. That'd be great. All right, so with that said, my last question for you then is, do you have anything you'd like to say to the fans of your games to end this cast on? The only thing I ever say, thank you. I mean, you know, the support of my fans has enabled me to live the life that I dreamed of as a child, and I am infinitely grateful. Awesome. So... With that said, we're going to end things here for this week's cast. Be sure to check out Queen's Wish when it is released. And for the people listening, what platforms will it be available on? Uh, starting with Windows and Macintosh, and then as soon as I can get it done and out the door, iOS, iPad, and iPhone. All right. That's the current plan. All right. And for people who want to follow you, do you have any social media you would like to plug now? Sure. Um, the best way to learn what we're doing, um, go to spiderwebsoftware.com and join our mailing list. There's a field in the upper right. Um, we love when people join that, and we are we'll you only hear it from us like two or three times a year. On Twitter, uh, I am on Twitter. Uh, let me try to figure out what I am on Twitter. Um, Lord, I should be. I'm terrible at <laughs> being in business. Just bad at this. Uh, why does Twitter make it so hard to figure out what your username is? I, I think it's Spiderwebsoft. Oh, profile. Okay, I'm going to click on profile. Um, I am Spiderwebsoft on Twitter, and um, I'm fun to follow. I say funny things. All right. So with that said, we're going to end things here for this week's cast. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in. If you support what I do, be sure to check out patreon.com slash GWBicer. If you're a developer who likes to come on for a cast, you don't have to rant as much, but as long as you like to talk about game design, please don't hesitate to get in touch and come back for daily discussions on game design here as well as on our YouTube channel. And if you'd like to join our Discord channel, there will be links to it, I think, all over the place. But that's going to do it for this week. Once again, Jeff, thank you for coming on, and I hope we can have another chat in the future. And thank you. All right, so with that said, thanks again for tuning in, and I will talk to you again next time for another discussion about the art and design of video games. Until then, take care.